Dirty Bird Podcast contains foul language and is not appropriate for young fledglings. Listener discretion is advised. I remember oh so well Strolling in the dusky dell I would thrill because the whippoorwill was serenading Trilling while stars were rapidly filling the sky Welcome to Dirty Bird Podcast, a podcast that's serious about birds, but nothing else. And from today's intro music, you probably already know that we're talking about the Eastern Whippoorwill. This is a bird that instantly makes me think of warm, calm summer nights. Um, specifically, it reminds me of a night last summer Um out on Johns Creek, which is uh, just outside Newcastle, Virginia, camping with a bunch of my buddies and and listening to the whippoorwills as we sat around a campfire. And that's the connotation that a lot of people associate with this bird. Um, As we'll learn, it's a fairly common bird, or at least used to be, um, throughout a lot of the eastern U.S. and parts of eastern Canada. That song in the intro was from an old sheet music song from 1920 called Whippoorwill, and was used with permission from SheetMusicSinger.com. Check them out if you play piano. They have lots of old sheet music songs that are just available for free on their site. Um, And I just kind of really liked that uh, old-timey song about whippoorwills. Um, There's actually a lot of songs about whippoorwills out there. Um, Everyone from... Elton John to Alan Jackson um, has talked about them in their songs. Sorry if you're hearing uh, any jet noise. I am recording from my closet in Virginia Beach currently, and uh, the Navy's doing some training exercises with their jets. That made me think real quick, too. You know, like, aircraft is named after birds, like F-16 Falcon, and you got, like, the Black Hawk helicopter, but... Whippoorwill gets really slept on, you know? Like, uh, it's a nocturnal bird. Come on, you could name, like, I don't know, some spy plane after it. Thanks to Grant for suggesting this episode, and thanks so much to everyone in general that has written in uh, via email, dirtybirdpodcast at gmail.com, or on Instagram or Facebook. Um, I have so many bird suggestions right now from fans that I'm trying to work through them. I promise I haven't forgotten about y'all. Um, I really appreciate it. And y'all, if you would just spread the word about Dirty Bird on like your social media, tell your friends, and please, please, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts. Um, that'll help other people find the show. And most of you are probably thinking right now, he's probably going to keep begging for reviews for the next, I don't know, 10 minutes. Well, whipper will I? Or whipper won't I? Okay, I couldn't resist sneaking in an awful pun there. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> On with the show. So like I said, the whippoorwill is pretty well-known and well-loved. Um, it has some pretty awesome nicknames too, such as Goat Sucker and Bug Eater. But before I go on to talking about the amazing life history of this bird, talk about its incredible physical adaptations, and discuss its evolutionary history, let me start off the show with a Native American cultural story. This tale I'm about to tell is adapted from the legends of the Mohegan tribe of Connecticut. It's a warm summer night in Uncasville, Connecticut. The night is alive with the sounds of crickets and a gentle breeze blows through the dark New England forest. But the trees aren't the only things stirring tonight. As a whippoorwill begins to call in the darkness, it heralds the arrival of a strange and magical people. From under a large hill in the town, called Mohegan Hill, a group of little people creep out. They are knee-high and walk silently about on shoes made of moccasin flour, 
a wildflower also known as Pink Lady Slipper. As they walk out of their hill, they pass piles of stones with strange inscriptions on them. These are the bones of Mother Earth and contain inscriptions meant only for the Mohegan people. These little people, known as Makioisug by the Mohegan, aren't just out for a nightly stroll though, they are on a mission. They suddenly transform, becoming small, mottled brown birds that fly expertly through the woods, darting past tree trunks as they give their signature call. Suddenly, they spy something on the forest floor and stop. This is what they were looking for, a basket full of maize cakes, freshly picked berries, and dried venison. The Makoisug, working together to lift the human-sized basket, rejoice at their gift. Maybe they'll leave the nearby humans alone and not play any tricks on them this summer. Or maybe not. Regardless, any human in Uncasville should beware when they hear the call of the whippoorwill, for it means the Mukkiowisug are about, and they don't like being talked about or stared at. So keep your mouth shut, your gaze down, and just enjoy the sounds of a warm summer night. So later on in the show, I'll talk about some more kind of myths about these birds. Um, most of them are pretty bad. Uh, I feel like with most nocturnal birds, they're always associated with, you know, death and evil. Uh, that was the only one I found that was kind of like, you know, they're associated with like kind of a, a mischievous, magical people, um, which I liked. So stay tuned to the end of the show to hear kind of more about some myths and legends. The scientific name for the whippoorwill is Antrostomus vociferus, and they are part of the order Capromogaformis. This order contains about 89 species that are spread throughout the world. Birds within this order are often called night jars. The order name, Capromogaformis, is an allusion to the folk name goat sucker that's commonly applied to night jars. Um, there's a super old superstition going all the way back to ancient Greece, actually. Um, Aristotle described how these big-mouthed nocturnal birds would suck a goat's milk dry during the night, leaving none for the poor farmer in the morning. This led to the order name Capromogaformis. It's a combination of the Latin word capra for goat and mogio to milk. Of course, these birds don't actually drink goat milk. As we'll see later on in the show, they are voracious bug eaters. So that genus name, Antrostomis, it's a combination of two Greek words, antron meaning cavern and stoma meaning mouth. Stoma is kind of an interesting word because it actually pops up in my medical career all the time. The openings to like colostomy bags or really just any artificial hole in the body is referred to as a stoma. So not going to lie, I got a little grossed out thinking about these bugs as stoma mouse. Um, but really what they're talking about here is cavern mouths with these birds because they have huge mouths that they can open up to just collect bugs like they're going into a basket. The species name, Vociferous, is a bit of a Latin word scramble. Um, there's a couple of other species, such as the killdeer, that bear this genus name also. It comes from the Latin word vox, meaning to cry, and fere, meaning to suffer or to endure. So I can't really tell um, if this genus name was given to the whippoorwill, like the taxonomists were implying that its call was something you had to endure, or that it just gave its call a lot, so it was like able to endure calling a lot. Um, I think it's more that latter, because, I mean, you think about killdeer, they're always calling too. This bird is found in North America and is actually a migratory species. When breeding, it is found in southern eastern Canada, down into the Midwest, all along the eastern U.S. and into the southern U.S. Its breeding range stops around Mexico. There's a closely related species called the Mexican whippoorwill um, that picks up its range where the eastern whippoorwill leaves off. Um, it extends down to the Sierra Madre, Occidental Mountain Range, and then also there's a population of them over kind of in Arizona, New Mexico area. In the summer during breeding season, whippoorwills prefer early successional forests, such as the kinds of trees that sprout up within a few years after a wildfire or clear-cutting. They like open canopy forests with little undergrowth, which helps foster the insect populations they rely on for food. In the fall, the entire population of whippoorwills traveled through east Texas, down eastern Mexico, and ultimately to the forests of southern Mexico and northern Central America, where they spend the winter. 
Interestingly, they seem to prefer more mature, closed canopy forests in their wintering grounds. If you're ever out trying to get a good look at these birds, good luck. Um, they have what's called cryptic plumage, basically a blend of brown, black, tan, and white that helps them perfectly blend in with leaves and tree bark. They have an odd habit of, during the day, laying flush against tree branches, actually parallel to the tree branch. You know, kind of most birds perch perpendicular to the branch, you know, grab onto it with their uh, feet and everything. But these birds literally lay like right up against the branch for trying to pretend to be a tree branch during the day while they sleep so that they're not spotted. Most people only ever encounter these birds if they accidentally flush one from its hiding spot during the day or they hear them as they're calling at night. Whippoorwills are a bit bigger than a robin and have a very round head and chest that tapers back to a long tail. They have a very ball-like body with a tail attached. Their beak is small and skinny, but don't let that fool you. These birds have a huge mouth. In fact, it's such a huge mouth that it looks almost comical. They look like they're a puppet when they open their mouth. Males and females have some slight color differences. Um, both these birds have a white bib on their chest uh, just below their neck. In the males, it's a little bit more prominent because it's bordered with black feathers, so it stands out a bit. Um, in the females, it's bordered by buff feathers, so it's a little less noticeable. The male also has white spots on the outer retrices of his tail feathers, um, and this is kind of a more reliable field marker. If you ever do see a whippoorwill, you, you know, flush it from its hiding spot and it's flying away, or you kind of barely spot it at night and, you know, the darkness, um, those white spots on the tail feathers might stand out and help you to tell that it's a male. There are a couple look-alike birds for the eastern whippoorwill, um, but really, like I said, you're almost never going to see these birds, um, so I'm going to kind of differentiate them based off of song instead. The Mexican whippoorwill has a slower song than the eastern whippoorwill and has a little bit more of a trill to it. Chuckwill's willow is a nightjar whose range overlaps with that of the whippoorwill in the southern U.S. And like the whippoorwill, it says its name. Down in southern Texas, through Mexico, and into South America is a nightjar called the parakeet with its distinctive song. Whippoorwills are strict insectivores. Um, they gobble up large winged insects that are flying around at night. Moss, beetles, grasshoppers, fireflies, wasps, and mosquitoes are all on the menu. Usually it will perch on the ground or on a higher surface like a fence post or tree limb and then make short flights to pursue insects. Um, I've seen its flight often described as moth-like, like it looks like a giant moth flying out, which is somewhat terrifying. It also sometimes forages in rotten logs for bugs dwelling in there. And while whippoorwills really like eating bugs, they probably don't taste them at all. Their tongue is termed vestigial, meaning it's still around but does not serve its original function anymore, like the human appendix. Although, there is some debate about whether the appendix still serves a purpose. Anyway, um, they don't have much of a tongue, and they also don't have a crop. If you remember from many of my episodes on seed-eating birds, like morning doves, the crop is a special pouch like Oregon in the esophagus of birds that allows them to store large amounts of food while they're feeding. And then, later when they're resting, they can empty the pouch into their stomach and, you know, kind of take a food goma. Whippoorwills don't eat seeds, though. Um, they can just start digesting their soft, buggy meals right away without having to rest. The feathers of whippoorwills are soft, loose, and fluffy. This allows them to fly soundlessly at night. Unlike birds like the ruffed grouse or morning dove that, you know, when they take off, they make a lot of noise. Um, when whippoorwills are flushed, they're completely silent. So if you're walking in the woods and you accidentally disturb a whippoorwill, it'll almost be eerie, this, like, totally silent, moth-like flight away from you. 
So these birds are nocturnal, they eat bugs, they fly around, they kind of sound like a bat, but they don't have the sophisticated sonar system that bats do. Instead, they actually rely mostly on sight. To help with this, they have large eyes and a tapetum lucidum. The tapetum lucidum is a special eye membrane that helps reflect light back onto the retina and improve night vision. It's the reason why many animals' eyes seem to glow at night if you shine a flashlight on them or if you take a flash photo of them. I read a lot of research articles about other um, closely related birds to whippoorwills that have like very specialized, you know, rod and cone ratios and the arrangements of them that is proposed to help them be able to uh, locate prey at night. I didn't see any of those papers dedicated to whippoorwill eyes, so I'll steer away from any conjecture about um, what their rod and cone ratios might be. But while these adaptations work great in near darkness, they don't work in total darkness, so whippoorwills do still need some light to see and pursue their prey. So, in addition to being nocturnal, they're also crepuscular, meaning that they'll hunt at dusk and dawn, when there's some low-level light. They're also more active hunters and singers during moonlit nights. Um, I found a study out of the University of Alberta, aptly titled In the Still of Night, that correlated more active whippoorwill calling with moon altitude. Higher altitude moons tend to provide more illumination because they are in the sky for longer, um, moon altitude is different from a full moon. Um, it has to do with like moon rise and moon set times. That study also found whippoorwills in Canada were most active in singing four hours after sunset and at temperatures between 13 and 20 degrees Celsius, or 55 to 68 degrees Fahrenheit. I always associate whippoorwills with warm southern nights, um, but maybe 60 degrees is a warm summer night in Canada. And anecdotally, uh, when the moon is full, um, especially when it's at least, you know, half full, is um, when you tend to hear and see a lot of whippoorwills at night. Another organ that helps whippoorwills catch food during these summer nights are rictal bristles. Rictal bristles surround the mouth of the whippoorwills. They're whisker-like projections that are found in many other insect-eating birds, um, and they help both sense where the insect is in space and to act like a funnel to direct the prey into the beak. In some of the areas where these birds are located, you know, like the deep south of the U.S., it can get pretty hot during the day. And members of the nightjar order use gular fluttering and a low basal metabolic rate to stay cool on hot summer days. Gular fluttering is basically like panting, um, birds open their beaks and they push their hyoid bone, which is a bone in their throat, back and forth to facilitate water evaporation from their mouths. Birds generally have pretty high metabolic rates compared to other animals. Um, if you remember from my Birds Bods episode, um, many birds have internal body temperatures that are over 100 degrees. But whippoorwills have a lower metabolic rate, and their body temperature is much more like us humans. They hover around 37 degrees Celsius, which is right at 98.6 degrees Fahrenheit, the average human body temperature. Who knew we had so much in common with whippoorwills? And while there's hot summer days, there's also cold fall and spring days, too. The whippoorwill body temperature can go much lower than that 98.6. Several members of the nightjar order, including the poorwill, a close relative of the whippoorwill, are known to undergo states of torpor. We already talked about torpor in one of my very first episodes, Nice Tits, where I talked about how the black-capped chickadees will use it to survive cold, wintry nights. Torpor is like a short-term hibernation where an animal lowers its body temperature to conserve energy. During the day when whippoorwills are inactive and just clinging to a tree branch, hoping to be mistaken for bark, they have been recorded in states of torpor, especially during the spring and fall when daytime temperatures can still be quite cool. One study out of South Dakota in 2002 found whippoorwill body temperatures go as low as 18 degrees Celsius or 64.4 degrees Fahrenheit. That is crazy low. One last cool thing about these birds' bodies, they likely glow in the dark. Well, glow in the dark if you can see UV light, that is. You probably know that scorpions glow under a UV light. This is due to a chemical called porphyrin. 
some birds, nocturnal birds especially, have porphyrins in their feathers. The function of this isn't fully known. Probably it's a way for nocturnal birds to spot each other and to communicate. Um, I found a paper detailing the porphyrins in the red-necked nightjar. According to this paper, nightjars and their allies contain porphyrin. Um, I couldn't find any studies directly looking at porphyrins and whippoorwills, but I'm going to go out on a limb and I bet that they glow under UV light too. All right, so let's talk about some of these birds' vocalizations. I mean, of course, the most prominent one is that classic whippoorwill song. You'll hear that song most prolifically when they first arrive in the spring on their breeding grounds. The song is sung by the males and functions to help defend territory and to attract a mate. As the summer goes on, they sing less and less, but they can still be heard into September before they migrate south again. They also tend to only sing on nights that are calm and warm. They really appreciate a nice summer night. If it's windy or raining, they will sing less frequently, if at all. And along with that classic whippoorwill, whippoorwill song, they will also give a more low-pitched cluck sound that is harder to hear. Um, Often they'll give this cluck at the end or beginning of the song. I guess it depends on your frame of reference, um, what you think. I've I've seen it both ways. Um, The cluck is really fast and kind of hard to hear unless you're close by to a singing whippoorwill and listening very carefully. It will also give a variety of standalone cluck-like calls, too. I found an article in the AUK from 1953 where researchers out of the University of Utah recorded Whippoorwill song on an oscilloscope and slowed it down to interpret the calls. They found three distinct calls, the first two being largely inaudible to the human ear. The third call was the classic Whippoorwill that the bird is named for. The second sound was that cluck call. The first sound, however, is so short and at such a low amplitude that the human ear cannot detect it. It lasts only 0.011 seconds and is composed of three notes, the first two separated by a rising octave and then drops one note. Sort of like this. So if you were a whippoorwill, here's maybe what the false song might sound like. Interestingly, these researchers also experimented with mimicking the whippoorwill calls back into the oscilloscope, and while they thought that they were doing a pretty good mimic, um, their call looked nothing like the actual whippoorwill call when viewed on the oscilloscope. So I'm sure that whatever song I just composed there, uh, whippoorwill would not recognize it at all. All right, let's talk about whippoorwill reproduction. So, as I said earlier, whippoorwills migrate north in the spring to breeding grounds in southeastern Canada, down into the Midwest, across the eastern U.S., and into the southern U.S. They prefer to breed in open canopy, low underbrush forests that has some nearby tree-free areas that allow them to fly around and feed. They also don't like being too high up in the mountains, but will change their exact breeding elevation based on what's available. For example, in New Hampshire, whippoorwills aren't found often above 180 meters or 600 feet elevation, probably because there's just so much low-lying area. In the Adirondack Mountains of New York, they aren't found above 300 meters. I found a study that put a smile on my face out of my old stomping grounds in the Monongahela National Forest of West Virginia. Um, They looked at whippoorwills' preferred breeding sites and found that they preferred the lowest elevation sites. However, this is the Allegheny Mountains after all, and the lowest sites were at least 300 meters above sea level, or 1,000 feet elevation. No whippoorwills were found at the highest elevation sites of 3,000 feet. 
Come to think of it, when I lived in Elkins, West Virginia, which lies right on the Monongahela and sits at an elevation of 2,000 feet above sea level, I never once heard a whippoorwill, so they were probably all hanging out at whatever the lower elevation sites were. Anyway, once whippoorwills reach their breeding ground, they begin to immediately start trying to find a mate. The males are singing, they're defending territories, and the females are shopping around. Not a ton is known about these birds' reproduction. I mean, you know, they're nocturnal, they're cryptic color, they're pretty secretive. However, we do think that they're monogamous, at least during a breeding season. If a female likes what a male's singing, she'll respond by performing a dance. She will step side to side from left to right with her tail and wings outspread and her head bowed. The male may also display a dance, too, where he will hover in the air a few feet above the ground, droop his tail, and then spread it out quickly, displaying those white spots. I've seen this tail display described as a white flash amongst the darkness. People have also noticed this display, too, um, kind of when they enter the nesting area of um of a whippoorwill, so it may be kind of a threat display or an investigation display also. Um, people also theorize it might be used to like flush out bugs, like the, the white in the tail might f- scare bugs and allow the whippoorwill to find bugs, but I like it more as a courtship dance, so that's what I'm sticking with. Males and females seem to have a lot of attraction for each other, even apparently cuddling when they sleep. In Highland Park, Illinois, an observant birder found a well-known whippoorwill couple on his property sleeping on a log together. They were facing each other with their heads side by side and one wing spread over the head of the other. Not gonna lie, that sounds pretty damn comfy. I didn't find any description of their actual mating, but I'm sure it happens after one of those cuddle sessions. (laughs) Um, The female will lay usually two eggs directly on the ground on a bed of leaves in the woods. They don't make a nest at all, just uh, area kind of flattens down where they lay their eggs and then, you know, their bodies as they brood the eggs kind of make a little depression. They usually pick a spot on high ground in the forest so that it is well-drained and that the eggs won't end up in a puddle. The eggs are white with many brown splotches. And since they like to lay their eggs on kind of a bed of dry leaves... They usually lay them beneath a deciduous tree that has dropped those leaves uh, in the earlier fall. Nesting on the ground does make them pretty vulnerable to predators if discovered. A study conducted in pitch pine and scrub oak forests in western Massachusetts found a 63% nest survival rate for whippoorwills. This study is pretty consistent with another study of Kansas in 2002. It found a 70% nest survival rate. This is actually pretty good for ground nesting birds. Um, If I recall from our rough grouse episode, the nest survival was anywhere from like 30 to 60%. Um, They got preyed on a lot. So yeah, 30 to 40% of uh, whippoorwill nests will fail. You know, they'll get eaten by a hungry raccoon or fox or something like that. But I mean, that's pretty good when you're just laying some eggs on the ground that uh, they hold up that well. The male is territorial of the nesting site and will chase off rivals by opening his mouth wide and hissing. Honestly, with how big the mouth is of these birds, even I would get chased off by that display. The males and females will share incubation, but the female takes the majority of it. After about three weeks, the eggs hatch. When the young hatch, they are covered in soft, fluffy down that is yellow-brown in color to perfectly blend in with the leaves. They are also pretty well developed at birth, and while initially their eyes are closed, they soon open, and the nestlings will actively move around and hide from predators if approached. This strict nestling period only lasts for about three to eight days. Remember how I talked about how whippoorwills feed best during full moons? Well, they seem to be really in tune with the moon cycle, and time the laying of their eggs so that they hatch ten days before the full moon. That way, the parents will have plenty of moonlight to help catch bugs for their hungry young. Around day 8, when the nestlings are much more mobile, don't really require to be brooded a lot anymore to thermoregulate, the female may leave the nest and leave the male to take over. And at this time, she may go lay a whole second clutch of eggs. 
The young still won't fledge for another 15 to 20 days, so they will still rely on their parents to help feed them bugs. But as they start to get their feathers and be able to fly, they'll have a nice nearly full moon to be able to feed under. And the young may remain with their parents throughout the rest of the summer, only separating once it's time to migrate. Overall, whippoorwills seem to be pretty caring parents. Um, I found an account from Sangamon County, Illinois in 1908, where an adult whippoorwill lured people away from its nest by feigning it had a broken wing. We've also seen this with other ground nesting birds like the ruffed grouse. So we talked about how these birds feed, how they breed. Let's learn a bit about their evolutionary history. As I mentioned at the top of the show, whippoorwills are part of the order Capromolgiformes that contains nightjars, whippoorwills, poorwills, and nighthawks. Previously, other largemouth nocturnal birds like potus, oilbirds, and frogmouths were in the same order as the nightjars, but based on genetic evidence, they were recently removed. And when I say recent, I'm talking about like 2021. So this exact phylogeny of these birds is still a pretty hot topic of debate. I'll give my usual preface that I'm not an ornithologist, just a dude that likes reading research papers on birds. Come on, how strange is that? (laughs) And if I get anything wrong, please correct me. Uh, For the purposes of this show, um, I'll still refer to the frog mouse oil birds, owlet night jars, um, as capromogaformes, or I'll just call them night jars and their allies. These birds are all certainly related, but the nightjars have now emerged as their own distinct group. There's a lot of debate as to the closest ancestors of the Capromolgiformes, uh, both owls and apodiforms, the order that contains swifts and hummingbirds, share some common anatomy with nightjars. Specifically, apodiforms and Capromolgiformes have a distinctive crus longum, a feature on one of the bones of the bird's forelimbs. The genetic information is a bit of a mixed bag. Some studies support a relationship between owls, apodiforms, and nightjars, while others do not. Aside from genetics and comparative anatomy, though, there's a question of the evolutionary origin of nocturnal behavior. Five different orders that previously made up the capromolgiforms, the nightjars, frogmouse, potus, oilbirds, and owlet nightjars, are all nocturnal and obviously have some kind of common ancestor and relationship. Although, like I said, the exact details are unclear. Another order, the owls, are also nocturnal, and debatedly have an ancestral relationship with these other nocturnal birds. So, what makes the most sense? That these six different orders evolved to be nocturnal separately? Or that there was just one common ancestor that evolved to be nocturnal, and then went on to form these six different orders? Well, I feel like most people would think it's more likely that being nocturnal evolved just once rather than six separate times. Another thing supporting this owl nightjar common origin is based on the visual system. Anyone who's looked straight at an owl knows it is hauntingly human-like because of the fact that both its eyes face forward like ours. This allows for binocular vision where both eyes overlap a lot in their visual fields and allows for some more higher-level visual processing to happen in the brain. Owls have an extremely sophisticated primary visual cortex in their brains compared to other birds. This area is called the versed, and is akin to the primary visual cortex in the occipital lobe of humans called V1. I love the name versed (laughs) for the area in uh, birds that processes vision. Um, it's ironic with the owls, you know, like they have the best vision, but really it's the worst vision. <laughs> uh, anyway, nightjars and their allies also have a pretty sophisticated worst region in their brain and a degree of binocular vision. It's, it's much less than what the owls possess, but still significant compared to other bird species. Owls have about 86% of their neurons in the worst dedicated to binocular vision, and the next most binocular nightjar ally, the frogmouth, has about 50%. Some nightjars that have been studied have 25% binocular vision in their verst. Um, that's actually more comparable to day-feeding bird species. Um, I did find a study specifically about the bandwing nightjar. Um, it has a lot of binocular overlap in its visual field. I didn't see them talk about its verst. Um, and that was around 42% visual overlap just with its eyes, 
and that is pretty significant compared to other day-feeding birds. And the bandwing nightjar, you know, is related to the whippoorwill. So there is definitely a lot of binocular vision among members of this order. They're nocturnal, so, I mean, it could hint at a common ancestry with the owls, or it could just be an example of convergent evolution. That's when two vastly different species develop similar solutions to the same problem, like wings in bats and birds. But don't forget about the apodiforms. Swifts and hummingbirds are certainly not nocturnal, and while it's unclear their exact relationship to the caprimulgiforms, um, there's certainly something there based on genetic and bone similarities. Also, from what I could find, apodiforms don't have the more developed binocular vision of nightjars and their allies. So, did the common ancestor of all these birds start as a diurnal or daytime species, become nocturnal, and then the ancestors of apodiforms independently evolved to become diurnal again, and lost that sophisticated binocular vision too? That scenario seems pretty unlikely. But wait, let's talk about some more comparative brain anatomy. Riveting, I know. Swifts and hummingbirds are common in that they both have strong wings that help them navigate through the air and catch bugs or drink nectar. Their legs, on the other hand, are fairly weak as they almost never walk on the ground or cling hard to a surface. When you look at their cerebellum, the part of the brain that helps control coordination, balance, and movement, the anterior lobe is significantly reduced in swifts, hummingbirds, and nightjar. The anterior lobe is associated with leg muscles in many bird species and could demonstrate a common ancestor between nightjars, hummingbirds, and swifts that evolved weak legs in favor of a focus on flight. So that's a lot of information to just basically say I'm at a loss about what to exactly think about the deep origins of the nightjar family, but I think it's fun to kind of investigate an active area of research within ornithology. Um, of note, uh, One Zoom Tree of Life, which I've mentioned a lot in this show, um, it's a resource I've used to help figure out evolutionary relationships and timing of splits before. Uh, they don't have owls anywhere near night jars on, uh, on their model, so I'm kind of deferring more to the papers I've read instead. As far as my review of the fossil record, ancestors of modern-day oil birds, who now live exclusively in South America, were once plentiful in the Green River Valley of Wyoming during the Eocene period, 33 to 69 million years ago. Fossils of ancestor frogmouse, which are now restricted to Australasia, have also been found in the Green River Formation. Fossils from ancient relatives of the frogmouse, potus, and true nightjars to which our whippoorwill belongs have all been found dating from the same time period in Messel, Germany. This tells us two things. The nightjar and its allies all differentiated by around 40 to 50 million years ago, and back then they appear to have been much more widespread before they became confined to their current locales. And you'll notice that fossils for the potus and the nightjars um, were both found in Messel, Germany. Um, I did find a paper that supported that they were sister taxons, meaning that they would have been the last ones to share a common ancestor. Um, you know, the frog mouse, oil birds, all of them had already split, and then the potus and nightjars were kind of the last uh, relatives to diverge. The relationship within our nightjar family, Caprimulgidae, is a little more clear. Traditionally, this family is separated into nightjars and nighthawks. Both are nocturnal, but nightjars, like our whippoorwill, have plump little bodies, bristles, and good camouflage, while nighthawks, true to their name, have long, narrow wings, mostly lack rectal bristles, and are often observed flying high up in the air chasing insects, as opposed to nightjars' more terrestrial prey approach. This might make you think, well, obviously there was some common ancestor for, you know, the Caprimulgidae family, and then it split into two branches that formed the nightjars and the other that formed the nighthawks. However, genetics tell a different story. Mitochondrial analysis has shown that the Caprimulgidae genus Eurostopotus, which resides in Australia and Papua New Guinea, and the collared nightjar that lives in Madagascar are the most basal members of the group, meaning they evolved first. This suggests an Indian Ocean origin for the family Caprimulgidae. It also suggests that the first members of the family were very nightjar-like, with rectal bristles, round bodies, and cryptic feather coloration. The nighthawk body type evolved later. 
and it doesn't appear that the Nighthawk body type evolved just once, but multiple times independently. The rest of Capromulgidae can be divided up into four clades, one Old World clade and three clades within the New World. Species traditionally called Nighthawks reside within two different clades, meaning the Nighthawk body type evolved at least twice independently in an example of convergent evolution. The Whippoorwills genus, Antrostomus, belongs to the New World clade 1, along with Poorwills, Chuckwills Willow, and Parakeets. The Mexican Whippoorwill, the Puerto Rican Nightjar, and the Eastern Whippoorwill are all closely related and make up a superspecies. I couldn't find anything on estimates on when exactly they split, but I could find an estimate on when their common ancestor likely split from their next closest relative, the Dusky Nightjar, that lives in the highlands of Panama and Costa Rica. One Zoom Tree of Life has them separating about 6.5 million years ago. Again, take that with a grain of salt. Um, I don't blame One Zoom Tree of Life for being like a bit misaligned with some of the papers I've read. Like I said, this is a very active area of research. And um, I did actually kind of find the paper that I think One Zoom of Tree of Life is using to base their model off of. So, in summary, there is some kind of complicated relationship between Capromulgiforms, owls, and hummingbirds and swifts. The fossils of frogmouse, oil birds, and nightjar relatives dating from the Middle Eocene and found in sites in Wyoming and Germany tell us that 38 to 47 million years ago, the major clades within Capromulgiforms had formed and that some members had much wider distributions than they do today. The earliest members of the nightjar family, Capromulgidae, likely first formed around the Indian Ocean. When they reached North America, three major clades diverged, and within two of them, long slender wings and an aerial pursuit strategy evolved, forming the Nighthawks at least twice independently. The ancestor to our whippoorwill likely formed around 6.5 million years ago when it split off from the dusky nightjar, and since then, three other splits have happened in the whippoorwill superfamily, forming the eastern whippoorwill, the Mexican whippoorwill, and the Puerto Rican nightjar. So there we go. I hope y'all aren't bored by this evolutionary stuff. Um, I think it's fascinating, but it's really hard to sort through. It by far takes up my most time when I research for the show. As I alluded to at the beginning of the show, whippoorwill populations are not doing so well. They are currently listed as near-threatened on the Global Conservation Status and threatened on Canada's Species at Risk Act. In the past 50 years, it's estimated their populations have shrunk by greater than 70%. Right now, their population is estimated at 1.8 million, which is spread pretty thin considering the wide distribution of these birds. Even as early as 1925, people were noticing a decline of whippoorwills. I found an article out of Sigourney, Iowa, where the author details areas where he had previously found whippoorwill nests that had all been converted to hog pastures, sheep pastures, and cultivated land, and how he now notices a decrease in whippoorwill calls ever since. He also notes that there's way more biting insects at night than there were before, and theorizes that the whippoorwills were keeping their population down. So what's causing the population decline in whippoorwills? As I kind of just alluded to, disruption of their breeding grounds in the form of habitat destruction and prey destruction with pesticides is definitely a major contributor. Remember that breeding whippoorwills prefer open canopy forests with little underbrush. Years of fire suppression have really limited uh, areas like this in the U.S. And then what areas we do, you know, set aside for nature, um, we set aside as like forests and they become mature forests that have closed canopies and aren't suitable for breeding of whippoorwills. And then everything else, we just slap concrete over it. Another thing is that traditionally much of rural America was many small farms that were bordered by woodlands. And these woodlands, you know, were probably clear-cut periodically. Um, so this allowed whippoorwills to kind of have these small open canopy woodlands that they could breed in. And then they could go to the nearby small farms to fly around at night where it's nice and open and catch lots of bugs. However, in America, many of these small farms are disappearing, and big farms are just getting larger and larger, replacing them. 
So what was once a lot of little farms separated by woods is just one giant field. Especially in the eastern U.S., um, a lot of like protected wilderness or wild areas that are left are mostly up in the mountains. And remember, whippoorwills don't like breeding at high elevations. Another potential cause for their decline is the bird's migration. Remember how almost the entire population travels through East Texas and Mexico on their way to their wintering grounds in southern Mexico and northern Central America? Well, this is done to avoid flying over the Gulf of Mexico, and it really bottlenecks the population into a small corridor. Adverse weather, insect population failures, and habitat destruction along this corridor can really negatively impact large numbers of migrating whippoorwills. And remember, this is East Texas, one of the most highly urbanized areas in North America. These whippoorwills are passing through cities like Dallas, Houston, Austin, and San Antonio. Artificial light and pavement aren't exactly ideal conditions for a bird that loves darkness and forests. Not to mention window collisions, but I'll let you check out my Pain in the Glass episode to learn more about that. And there's habitat destruction going on at their wintering grounds, too, in southern Mexico and northern Central America. When these forests are cleared, it leaves them really nowhere to go. They prefer mature, closed-canopy forests on their wintering grounds, and those forests take decades to grow. I also saw them listed as common victims of car collisions because they will often sit on fences along roadsides at night and then swoop out into the road to grab bugs. When they're not getting hit by cars or going through a crisis from trees being cleared, um, these birds actually do pretty well in the wild. Um, for their size, they live for a pretty long time. The oldest whippoorwill I saw recorded was 15 years old. Well, y'all, that's pretty much it for the show. I am going to close out with kind of some random facts and superstitions about whippoorwills. Um, I hope you liked the episode. I hope the jet noise wasn't too loud. I swear, there's someone working at the Navy that literally just waits for me to record and then tells some fighters to come swoop low over the house and break the sound barrier. And again, again, please, y'all, share the show, write a review, help spread the Dirty Bird love. I um, found a lot of interesting, you know, like folk stuff um, about whippoorwills, um, you know, when I was researching them. Um, I found a superstition dating from 1899 in southern Appalachia uh, that stated if a whippoorwill lands on your doorstep, it will bring you bad luck unless you throw fire at it. <laughs> um, I don't know how you really like throw fire, what you just like <laughs> scoop it up and, and toss it. I also found another legend out of Southern Appalachia that when you hear the first whippoorwill of springtime, you should lie down on the ground, roll over three times, reach over your left shoulder, and grab the first thing your hand touches. Put that object under your pillow at night, and whatever you dream will come to pass. Let's hope you're not in like a cow pasture when this happens, and it's a cow pie that is the first thing your hand touches. I found a superstition from the 1800s out of the Champlain Valley. Um, it stated that if a whippoorwill sings its song underneath the window of a house at night, it's a sure sign that death will occur at the household, usually the person whose window the whippoorwill was singing by. Definitely, like, a lot of people um, have associated this bird with uh, death and scariness over the years. Um, H.P. Lovecraft even kind of includes it in some of his stories as a horror element. But other authors focus more on kind of like the pastoral side of this bird that, you know, it uh, is associated with farms and, and being out in the country, uh, like Jack London mentions it in his works. So there you go, y'all. You know a lot about the whippoorwill, probably too much its evolution, feeding, reproduction, and then also some great folklore behind it, too. Thanks for listening, and as always, stay dirty, fellow birdies. Dirty Bird Podcast is brought to you by me, John, with my rotating panel of guests and co-hosts. Thanks for being on the show, everybody. The Dirty Bird theme song is by Ricky Pistone. Check out his groovy and hilarious music videos on YouTube. The outro music you're listening to right now is a song New York Redneck by the Sidewalk Slammers. Check them out wherever you get your music. 
The Dirty Bird Podcast logo is by the very talented TJ Ranoski. And of course, a shout out to my beautiful wife, Lauren, who created my original logo. Check out the show notes for this episode for a full list of credits for any bird calls or sounds used in the episode. Thanks for listening. Jungle, I might get into a little rumble.